Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bunker Books podcast. I'm Nick Cohen, and I am delighted today to be joined by Matthew Dancona, former editor of Spectator, now with Tortoise, writes everywhere, thinks about everything, and is the author of Identity, Ignorance, and Innovation, and What to Do About It. Matt, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. Matt, this is a a vast book, covers an awful lot of ground. I thought we might begin to give the listeners some idea of your thinking if we start with the identity section. You make quite a good defence of identity politics, or if not defence, at least an explanation of why it's inevitable. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose that the identity section of the book came from a reflection that began in Brexit times uh, during the long Brexit wars in Parliament and then um, hardened during the early months of, of the pandemic and the, the, obviously the horrendous murder of George Floyd. And and thinking about it, there was a, a recoil from identity politics by many liberals, which I understood, but I think missed the good stuff in identity politics, if you like, which is that it is, if you like, a necessary reproach to classical liberalism and to the idea of meritocracy, because there are groups who simply aren't being served by universalist li- liberalism and the, the meritocratic ideal. And that's why they pursue a, a politics that's based upon group membership and identity, I'm not trying to be awkward, not trying to ruin the chances of progress. They are simply saying, what about us? And there is, it's not working for us. And so there is there, there are lessons to be learned in in that, I think, and a humility to be adopted in in part in in taking on some of those lessons. I also think that in every generation, there's a progressive moment, and this is it. And there is huge, huge energy in it. What your book answered quite well for me was that from a classical left perspective, you'd have expected after the great crash of 2008, and now with COVID wrecking the economy, radicalism to be economic rather than identity based you have quite a good explanation why why that's not the case is it simply aren't the ideas there yes i think that's right i I mean i think intersectionality as it's called is not a bad way of uh, it's just about another name for saying that you know of course ethnicity and socioeconomic factors interact and combine and with gender and many other things there's another reason for this which is that we lived during the Cold War and afterwards in an institutional setting in which politics was very much seen as a branch of economics by left and right. And that has changed dramatically in the digital era. And people have tended to cluster in affinity groups online. And so they see their problems and their anxieties often through the lens of those commonalities. doesn't mean that economic issues aren't important they're terribly important and it's clear you know when one listens to people in black lives matter or the constant refrain of the me too movement is that that women of lesser means have not yet been able to speak out so so issue the issue of class and of of wealth i think remains enormously important it hasn't gone away i suppose the the broader problem is that the left has not yet developed a a truly adhesive alternative to 
free market capitalism. But then again, neither is the right. We're in this weird situation after 2008 where neoliberalism, for want of a better word, failed, has failed. And yes. yet no one seems to know what to replace it with. That, that's right. And so one of the sort of messier outcomes of COVID is that you have governments such as Boris Johnson's, which is you know a populist right-wing government to its fingertips, spending a lot of money. And yet there is deep division within that government between number 10, the prime minister, and Rishi Sunak, who is a traditional fiscal conservative, I mean, you know, would be inclined to austerity in normal times. So in fact, the right is very divided on where to go. Now, I personally think that the best approach always is to, is to, and when Labour wins, is when it asks the future questions, which are what are the questions of the moment? And clearly, the big questions of the moment are climate change, technology, social care, automation, and all of those issues will involve considerable amount of government spending. So that's kind of the premise, as far as I'm concerned, of a, of a politics and of a political economy, if you like, of the 2020s, of left or right. I kind of think that, that the argument on fiscal conservatism is or at least should be over. But you're right, Nick. I mean, the, the, it is fascinating, isn't it, to look at the way that neoliberalism was found utterly wanting in the crash. And then it really produced a series of crises because there was no strategic global response to it other than to ensure that the ATMs continued to spill out money. I suppose that carried on. But there was no really structural answer to it. And this continues to have consequences to this day. Matt, please forgive me if I'm just seizing on little bits of your book and there are bigger themes you want to say. It was just it dealt with a question that's interested me very much. And it struck me that in a world where there aren't big economic ideas to reshape society, um, to generalise, I suppose people of universal basic income say, well, they've got some, and modern monetary theory. But where they're not realities for most people, then identity politics makes a kind of sense. Yes, absolutely. I think that's exactly right, which is that, you know, you want to, exp- at times of um, hardship and, and peril, you, you're looking for ways to express and seek solidarity. And if there are not economic principles around which to gather, or at least not conspicuously so, then you'll look elsewhere. I think it's really important not to abandon a class-based politics. I think one of the massive, massive divides that's going to play a really big part in the politics the next 10 years is the division between, if you like, the stable working class and the precariat. I mean, that will be a huge social divide. Can you explain that a bit more, Matt? Well, you'll have people who have jobs in the way that I understood when I was I started work, you know, which means that they they have a contract and they have a they might have pension rights and access to possible working benefits and so on, you know, a job of the basis. You're of- a nurse in the NHS, you've got a secure job, but you're not hugely well paid or anything, but it's all there for you. Yeah? Right, right. These are not rich people, but they are but they but they have a, a, a measure of security. They're probably in a union and and they have enforceable rights uh, you know which they can take to law then uh, you know underneath that there is a there is a huge and growing army of people who have practically no rights at all you know who have to turn up uh, like dockers used to for work at 4am you know amazon 
completion sites to get delivery work. Um, Uber drivers, delivery, delivery people, all, all these kind of people, they, they constitute a growing force in the workforce. Lots of social, uh, social care delivery people are on zero hours contracts. This is a major change in the way that human beings live in the developed world. Also, Matt, if you like, above the secure working class, there's a sort of middle class precariat or people with degrees, middle class aspirations who expected a secure job, a home. I mean, perhaps I'm prejudiced or, or my thinking's distorted because I see it so much in journalism. But again, there are people who are highly precarious, always freelance, no pension, no maternity rights, whatever. Absolutely so. I, in a way, it, it curdles through the whole system, doesn't it? Other than the super rich, there is a level of in, there is a greater level of insecurity in employment now than than, than that has certainly been certainly in my lifetime. And I think that that changes the atmosphere, you know, the feeling in the air, the texture of politics, the texture of, of everyday life. It's a much more fearful business than it used to be. You know, work used to be very much at the heart of people's own identity. Now it is more often than not a source of anxiety to them because they don't know whether they're going to be able, you know, they're only one paycheck away from having nothing. As I said, I got an awful lot out of reading you, a great deal. But I kept thinking, and you kind of, perhaps I'm being unfair here, glossed over this a bit. The greatest identity politics we're seeing is a nationalist, a patriotic identity politics of the right. In Britain, you saw it with Trump, you see it in India with Modi, people who celebrate, I'm not saying you are, who celebrate identity politics on the left and regard it as the greatest thing, seem to be unaware that all, all the arguments they use can be used by their political opponents. First of all, I, I certainly don't think the identity politics of the progressive side is without flaws. And I particularly talk about the problems that are associated with scolding and censorship and a sort of piety, which I think is very off-putting. I suppose it's in this book, I was trying to recommend a truce between liberals and I, the identity politics movements of the left. But you're right, of course, that the, the symmetry, the symmetrical force is, uh, and, and one could argue a, a more successful force at the moment, is the identitarian uh, right. And there is absolutely no doubt that it is. it has not been finished off by the departure of Donald Trump. Far from it. I mean, what Boris Johnson, Manira Mirza, you know, Oliver Dowd and Robert Jenrick, all, all all that gang of Tories are rubbing their hands together to start or continue a culture war after the pandemic. They've already made clear that they want to fill, if you like, the cultural apparat with their I mean, you wrote about this very brilliantly during the Blair years, Nick, that there are always new elites and there is going to be a Boris elite, which is now being slowly filled. And it's not just about a parliamentary majority either. It's about filling key cultural institutions, whether it's broadcasters or museums or whatever you might mention, galleries, with people who are considered to be loyal to the regime. This is a big deal. And of course, let's add to that, the slow subsidence in the notion of the United Kingdom, which has happened since Brexit and will continue to happen. No one can say with any confidence what the pace of that will be, but you know, there is there is clearly a, a change in, in the wind. And, and it's not just a change in the wind in terms of the mood in, let's say, Wales or 
Scotland or Northern Ireland. It's also a change in the wind in the Conservative Party, because when I started reporting in the 90s, the Conservative Party was a absolutely definitively unionist party and was absolutely committed to that objective, sort of to its fingertips. That is not the case anymore today. Would Boris Johnson like to hold the union together? Absolutely. But Brexit was more important to him than the union. When I first met you, you were editing The Spectator, which is, you know, a conservative journal. And you were at the heart of the conservative movement in Britain, so to speak. How has it changed? How how have you changed since those days? Well, the standard sort of Frank Fields style answer is to say, well, I haven't changed, everyone else has. But that's a bit silly because, of course, in the course of a, a lifetime, unless you're unbelievably hard of thinking, you do change. The honest answer is that I I certainly believe when I first talked to you, Nick, and met you and we had really interesting conversations, I, I still believed that it was possible to modernise the Conservative Party, by which I mean that it was possible to bring it into contact with the reality of real Britain. And by that, I mean diverse urban Britain that, that is pluralist and complex and not not to feel kind of threatened by gay or trans people or really, really to understand that in, in a way it's entirely consistent with a certain tradition of conservatism to live and let live. And that was the Cameron project. But the truth is, it fizzled out. I mean, you know, there's no point in denying it. It it fizzled out and was overwhelmed by UKIP and the the project to get the UK out of the EU. And Cameron really moved quite significantly from a kind of, some would argue, cosmetic attachment to green issues to ditching the green agenda in favour of a you know, what turned out to be a very, very uh, counterproductive referendum policy. The kind of conservatism that, that I was suggesting that began in the the late 90s with people like Andrew Cooper and Danny Finkelstein and Rick Nye and Michael Portillo and Francis Maud and Nick Bowles and all, all that gang doesn't really exist anymore. You know, there are still, there are still there's, there's bright blue, a think tank I used to be proud to chair, and that, that still represents that side of conservatism. That strand of conservatism is not dominant or even really that significantly represented. And you can see how even I mean, some mentioned Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary. I mean, he was Cameron's deputy chief of staff. He was a remainer to his fingertips. And now he's become a sort of caricatured anti-woke warrior. And that is that is a measure of where ambitious people are positioning themselves in the party. You know, the, 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 this is there is a new dispensation. The party that is now in power bears no resemblance to the party that squeaked into office in 2010 with the help of the Lib Dems. How do you feel about comparing Boris Johnson to Donald Trump? Do you think it's outrageous or there's something in it? I mean, I don't think Boris Johnson is psychotic or deranged. You know, you could make a case to say that in a way he therefore has no excuse. I mean, I think his deployment of populist politics is entirely calculated i know that he like he you know he presents to the world a sort of chaotic bumbling face and to, to to a certain extent that's true you know he's not interested in policy detail and spreadsheet strategies that's for sure 
but he knows what he's doing. I mean, I mean, the classic example for me, and 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 uh, you know, where I really, along with his stand on Brexit, but you know, I really lost a huge amount of respect for him was when he played a very kind of dishonest card on the question of women in burqas, you know, the bank bank robbers and oh yeah problem. And I remember he, he'd written this column very soon after a meeting with Steve Bannon, who happened to be in London at the time. Oh, I didn't know that. And and I don't think Bannon had given him the idea of writing that particular common column, but certainly Bannon had said to him, you've got to get off your knees, you've got to make a stand, you've got to do something that gets bits of plaster falling off the ceiling. And I, I wrote this all up in a, in a column, I think, I think for The Guardian. And Boris was furious and he called me to object and I, you know, said, well, I'm not going to change my column. So there you go. Um, and I went off to the movies with my children. And when I came out, <laughs> he called 15 times. Jesus. And so he'd obviously, he'd obviously struck a nerve. And I'm, I'm glad it struck a nerve because it was a disgraceful column. And all the more disgraceful was the way the party formed a circle of wagons around him. Because what was wrong with it was... Something wrong with questioning any religion as a set of ideas, but punching down at people, you know, Muslim women wearing religious clothing is a very different matter. You know, he wasn't questioning the doctrine of what happens to apostates in Islam. That's a perfectly legitimate thing for anyone to do. Or pointing out that women, women in burqas are often forced by clerical patriarchy into covering themselves. Yes, exactly so. exactly so. And and all these are very uh, perfectly legitimate and normal arguments which are not is remotely Islamophobic. But to kind of get headlines by writing a piece that demeaned and mocked a group of women, I thought was was pretty low. I tell you why that you being called fifteen times is so suggestive as, as well, is the image Johnson gives is of, I'm a Falstaffian English man, I don't give a damn, you know, I shag, I drink, you know, everyone can have a great time with me around. And it's so untrue to people who know him. He is the guy who will phone, you know, Matt Dancona up 15 times to make sure that he's not embarrassing him or criticising him. He is, I know from my own experience, when, when you write a piece that's critical of him, he will phone your editor and scream and scream and scream his biographer, uh, Sonia Parnell, in a rather good attack biography a few years ago, said, think about Boris Johnson is, if you watch him, he never laughs. He smiles, he gets other people laughing, but he doesn't laugh himself because that means losing control. I agree with you absolutely that there's far more deliberation and uh, rat-like cunning in this than, than uh, his admirers understand. He, I think he's quite an isolated figure by temperament, actually. It's odd because you're absolutely right. I mean, he cultivates his image of being the life and soul. He confects temporary gangs. But look what happens. You know, the Dominic Cummings eruption is proof of how unstable those gang arrangements are. I think he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's not a a social character at all he's hugely ambitious he is contrary to a lot of people who said towards the sort of summer autumn of last year that he he was suffering so badly from the after effects of covid that would almost certainly throw in the towel they just didn't understand his character and his will to power um he wants to be prime minister for quite a long time to come 
one of your book's central ideas is the web changes everything. It's yeah. it's not you've got a lovely phrase, it's it's like you've moved house. You've just moved yeah. into a different world. You are hugely critical of the way both our political and our education system have failed to adapt to the new communications technologies. Yes, I mean I, I think that we've since the nineteen eighty eight Education Reform Act, we've pursued been pursuing a system of standardized testing. Um, which was probably needed then, but is is now running out of road. And schools are increasingly, although obviously the, the pandemic has been a you know, an awful hiatus in that, they're basically grade factories. Added to that, young people have so much of their bandwidth taken up by what I call in the book the digital instant. You know, they're j- just keeping up with their posts, their social media alerts, their emails. You know, all, all the different platforms they use is very, very testing and this means that their cognitive experience is is quite unlike any previous generations and when you have schools that offer them only tests you know the only thing that the education system offers them is sink or swim testing and examinations that's a pretty poor excuse for a you know a, the education of a citizen of, of a rounded person I understand the need for standardised testing, and I'm certainly not calling for it to be abolished. But I would like to see schools do more by way of education in the in in in, in the real sense, which is preparing people for the world, preparing them for a kind of environment that's going to be fantastically different to that which we grew up in, and will involve probably due to the changing labour market and and also longer life expectancy you know, several careers and we need to be taught to think and to learn how to learn. The, the idea that learning will end at 21, which was absolutely etched into my understanding of the world when I was growing up, is simply no longer the case. We will all have to retrain, upskill, reskill. And these are words that politicians use meaninglessly. But actually, we're now reaching, reaching a point in history where they have to mean a lot. You know, how do you, in a world of automation, in a world of AI, how do you, unless you move to a system where you accept, which I don't, that millions of people will be happy to do nothing, how do you actually deploy millions of people whose functions have been taken over by machines? And this, this is fundamental and it, it is urgent. And I do worry that politics ha- is not keeping pace with technology. In the past... You could say even political movements I profoundly disagreed with, like factorism. You could say, well, all right, I might hate it, but it is answering questions the country is facing. Hyperinflation in the 70s, trade union power. I might not like the answers, but I can see there are answers there. I simply can't see that with Johnson. I can't see how... The big questions facing society, like, as you said, with education and careers, or what on earth Britain is going to do to earn a living world after Brexit, I can't even see an answer, an, an answer I don't like, or any kind of No, answer. well, you've just seen the, you know, slashing of the education recovery plan to a, a, a you know, nugatory, derisory sum. The irony is that the Tories have, for the first time since 1987, a really big majority with which they can do just about what they want, and a opposition party that for all sorts of reasons is you know sleepwalking at the moment it has an opportunity to do anything pretty much 
Um, but it isn't interested in that. It, it's 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 a it's a permanent campaign. Um, it's all about the acquisition and retention of power. It's truly populist. It, it seeks simple solutions to complex problems. And the interesting question, in which is kind of the cliffhanger in all of this, I think, is what the post-populist world will be like. Because at some point, all these populist movements, unless they can continue to subsist on a sort of diet of hatred and blame and so on, will come a cropper because they simply don't deliver. You can't say world-beating everything, levelling up everything, and then 10 years down the line, you know, no such thing has happened. There has to be a moment of reckoning. At some point, I think, the Boris party starts to look much more like the Tory party. And at that point, there is an opportunity for progressive parties. But until that resumption, until the, the mask falls, if you like, the mask of this odd, disruptive maverick who seems somehow to trigger a positive response in voters that other members of the political class don't, um, until that fades, nothing much is going to change. On that cheery note, <laughs> uh, I think we must wind this up. I want to thank Matt Dancona very much for joining us. His book, Identity, Ignorance, Innovation, buy it, read it, you'll be doing yourself a favour, published by Hodder and Stoughton. It really is excellent. Um, Matt, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It was great fun. And it just remains for me to say, because in the last book's podcast, I forgot, and people on Twitter reminded me, can you rate this on your phone thing where you get your podcast and say we're absolutely brilliant? If you don't think that, just shut up. <laughs> and if you're loaded, could you consider subscribing to the Bunker Patreon page and giving us some money? Thanks very much. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.